This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. It's another episode of the Equalizer podcast as we celebrate Memorial Day weekend quite a bit differently than we're used to celebrating it, but trying our best nonetheless. My name is Dan Lawletta. I'm with Chelsea Bush and John Halloran, and we got a pretty positive response last week from our review of the 2013 NWSL draft. So we're going to go ahead and review the much more fascinating, in my opinion, 2014 NWSL draft. This was the first one that was open to media, open to fans, and it was when teams were already established. And I'll kick us off by saying that the Houston Dash came in as a late expansion team and they slotted into the second pick. We'll get to that as we run down the first round and we'll start with the Washington Spirit. And this really was what I think has been a fairly straightforward series of first overall picks. I don't think there's been a ton of drama around the number one overall pick over the years, and there was none here. It was Crystal Dunn. The Spirit were probably the worst team throughout 2013. They drafted Crystal Dunn. Fantastic pick. Now, it didn't really work out in with the way Crystal Dunn exited Washington, but I thought she was the right player at the right time. I thought Mark Parsons used her correctly, and I thought she was a pretty good reason why the Spirit went from also ran in 2013 to a playoff team in the subsequent years. Um, so, John, you want to start us off? What, do you, what are your thoughts on Dunn as the number one pick here? Yeah, I mean, obviously it turns out really well because the, the season after her rookie year is the one where she wins the MVP and the Golden Boot. They go to the final in 2016. And then, you know, you mentioned the end, which, yeah, it didn't work out in the long term with Washington, but in the trade that sent her rights to the courage, they end up picking up uh, Taylor Smith and Ashley Hatch, which is not a bad haul either. Yeah, especially Hatch, I think, is an underrated player. Smith maybe didn't really work out well in Washington. That was years down the road. But, yeah, that's a good call. I think they did as well as they could have done, let's put it that way. When, when yeah, were- and, and Smith was an allocated player when they traded for her. That was when True. it looked like she was going to be the right back for the U.S. national team. So, you know, in, in retrospect, yeah, it hasn't worked out, and she she tore her knee up, and we don't really know where her career is at. But at the time, that was a good a good haul. Chelsea, anything other than uh, what we said already on Dunn at the top? No, I think that I agree with everything. I think that she was a great pick then, and she is a great pick now. I mean, even in hindsight, it looks she was versatile. She had a great college career, a great youth team career. I mean, she's the first of, of many from that 2012 U20 championship team that will kind of appear throughout this draft. So, yeah, I, I think that's that's a solid pick for, for Washington. I think between her and Parsons, didn't see it as much in, in 14, but really started paying off in, in 15 beyond, kind of really helped turn that team around. Well, I think in 14, 
the Spirit made the playoffs, and I think they overachieved a little bit. And what I remember yeah. about that 14 team was as soon as they got a lead, it could be like the 65th minute, he would pack it in with like five defenders, and they would just defend for their lives. And he used Dunn a lot as an outside back on that team because that's where she was most needed. And then in 2015, he turned her loose, and she didn't make the World Cup team and took out you know, anger, frustration, and whatever you want to say. Maybe it was just her time but tore up the league really in a way we hadn't seen in the first two years, you know, where we've now got this Sam Kerr phenomenon, but I think Crystal Dunn was the first player to really just tear the league apart by scoring goals. And that was in 2015. I thought she was pretty good in 16 also, even though she only scored what four goals maybe. And then a couple in the final and was basically one sequence away from being MVP of that team in the final in 2016, when the flash tied it and eventually won it. Yeah, she was hands down the best player in that in that final. I know that they didn't win, but and she, she I think that you look at sixteen and you look at her both on the spirit and the national team and, and really evolving her game. Um there's a lot of talk about her not scoring goals because she'd scored so much in fifteen. But she she learned to do a lot better. She she really learned how to play attacking on the wing more. Um, she, cause I don't know if anyone else recalls, but when she first came back to the national team after the World Cup and Ellis played her as a winger, she wasn't very good there. She kept drifting centrally. And I think she, she figured that out throughout. I think she was also the best U.S. player at the, the 2016 Olympics. So I, I think she was great in 16. Yeah, I agree. I think it took her a little time to figure out that she had a better team around her and could distribute a little bit more. And once she figured that out, I think she was fantastic. Obviously, again, not the goal scoring impact. But I thought she was great, too. All right, the Dash got the second pick. Now, there's a lot of kind of, I don't know, maybe rumor about this number two pick because the history of soccer in this country, MLS and in WPS when there was expansion, was that the expansion teams would get the first pick. Now, I always theorized that the Spirit wouldn't give that up because the Dash didn't come in the league until about December. So the teams were already planning their off-seasons, and my theory was the Spirit were like, no, 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 we have been on this thing where we're getting Crystal done, and you're not taking that away from us. But there's also been this kind of unfounded belief that the Dash were put in the second spot, but they were instructed not to take Julie Ertz, and we know she was Julie Johnson back then, but we'll just go ahead and call her Julie Ertz for freeze. But at the same time, the Dash also wanted Kaylee Ojai from the get-go. And I think they would have taken Ojai no matter where they were picking. That doesn't mean they thought she was better than Dunn, because I don't think anybody did. Um, you could maybe make a case at the time that she was a more coveted player than Ertz. But, you know, I think overall Ojai did about as well as she could have done for the Dash. The reason the Dash are six years into this without being in the playoffs is not because they drafted Kaylee Ojai. And before she tore her ACL, she was on the fast track to the national team and to being a perennial 10-goal scorer in the NWSL. Yeah, and you look at not only the you know what she brought to a, a fledgling team as, as far as on the pitch, but she was also like the face of that team for the entirety that yeah. she was there. She, she was their franchise player. And when you're a new team and you're trying to get people in the seats, you need players like that. And she had ties to the city of Houston. Um, I, I think that when you're, you're building a new team, you look at someone who is likely going to want to be there, who can score goals and put people, you know, bring some attention to the team, put people in the seats. And I, I think she, yeah, even though Julie Ertz has, you know, turned out to be the better player, I think even in hindsight, I still think you go with Ohio at that two pick because of what 
the dash needed. They, they were building a brand new team. And I think you need that attacker before you need what was either going to be a center back or a defensive midfielder. Yeah. I think too, like we look at maybe she hasn't panned out to exactly what people thought she was going to, but 2016, she ties for the league leading goals and she hasn't played for a great team. The dash have just never been able to put it together. And whether you want to blame that on the players or the coaches or the management, um, we don't really know what she can do with a quality team, but uh, it is weird. You know, Dan, you talked about this, but not only in reading about this and discovering that originally they were supposed to be, their pick was supposed to be wedged in between the non-playoff and playoff teams, yep. but then it gets moved up, but doesn't get moved up to one. So, you know, how they arrived at it being the two instead of the three or the four, I mean, it's just such a weird, it's it's such an NWSL thing. It's just <laughs> yeah, kind of absolutely. like, uh, we'll make it the two then. That's right. when, Especially when we're looking at it from 2020, when we've had other expansion teams, and every single expansion team has been handled differently. So yeah. they're really, to this day, it's still not like a set situation of, okay, you get this pick and you get to do this and that and the other. They they just kind of figure it out as they go, which is the end of a cell to a T. And it reminds me of, Go ahead, John. I was just going to say one more thing about Ohio specifically in, in kind of defending this pick is that if you paid attention to the 2012 U-20 World Cup, you know that Crystal Dunn, Kalia Ohai, and Julie Johnson were the three best players on that field. Yeah, and right. then and then the the next year, the or actually, I'm sorry, it was that fall, those players come back and Dunn and Ohio win a national championship for North Carolina and Ohio scores in the national championship, and, and I think she scored in the semifinal, too. She scored the game-winning goal in the U-20 uh, World Cup final. So she was right there. There there was no um, real difference, I think, between Dunn, Ohio, and Johnston, and I think at that point any team would have been happy to have any of those three. It's interesting to think about maybe where her career would have gone right. had she been picked up by a different team, maybe yes, a slightly better absolutely. team. absolutely. Not kind well, of had to carry as much. That's kind of a good segue into the three and four picks, and we'll handle them together because the Red Stars made them both, and it was Julie Ertz and then Vanessa DiBernardo. And you really can't strike gold any more so than the Red Stars did because other than the fact that they haven't actually won the league title, they basically have turned around their franchise on the shoulders of these two players. And they're not the only two, but – there are some that believe Ertz is the best player in the world right now. I know Rory Dames talks about Vanessa DiBernardo being the player that ties their midfield together. And uh, she missed, a, was it two years ago, I think? She missed a good chunk of the season, and it was, that much was evident. But these are two picks that you really can't argue with. And, uh, you know, it's it was almost like they were done a favor because they didn't have to worry about making the pick with Dunn off the board and Ohio off the board. I get the feeling Dames would have taken Ertz with the, if he had the number one pick in that draft. But either way... I mean, these are these are franchise anchor picks. Yeah, and Di Bernardo's kind of one of those players that they've done so well with that grew up here, um, being from the Chicago area and uh, playing for the University of Illinois. That had those local ties, and they've made a lot of uh, they, they've made a lot of good picks, and they've gotten a lot of value out of taking those local players. And you know, she's got over a hundred NWSL starts. I think if you looked at this list. Um, Certainly of the players underneath her, she's had incredible value for that pick and, and uh, the length of her career and what they've gotten out of that. 
Yeah, solid picks. And one thing to point out, too, is Julie Ertz was the captain of that U-20 team that won uh, their World Cup. So I think even then you you could see kind of this leader that she was going to develop into and that, that you need that as much as, as you need anyone to do anything on the field. And they got so, that they pick w- from Seattle for Keelan Winters, which I I had forgotten until I was doing a little bit of research for this again. Yeah, I was going to say that, too, because if you remember, the Red Stars allocations were winners, box, and um, LaPelvet. Is that right? She was on their on their books for pre-2015. I don't remember which season, but yeah. But either way, Rory was basically like, look, winners and box are the same player. I don't need them both. And then they shipped out. Yeah, they, they then they sent winners to Seattle and got that pick, which was huge. And, you know, not a sign that Laura Harvey early on was maybe not so adept at handling the draft. Maybe she's maybe she never got over that, but not really. She wasn't really a great drafter early but, on in that regard. But also, I don't think you can say that that didn't work out for Seattle either. I mean, winners was a big part of that team. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I had another point, too, but, of course, uh, that point now has uh, slipped Dee Bernardo was on that uh, U20 team as well. All four of the – actually, yeah, this, all si- the top six picks yeah. were all this, from that team. This really is the U20 uh, – yeah. 2012 U20 team draft. There's so many – even in the later rounds, there are so many players that are on that team. Yeah, and Mandy Mandy Laddish and Molly Pathman both came from that team too. And yeah, I think, I think Jamie Kranich was on there. And that's the team now that everyone refers to as that U20 team, and everyone knows you're talking about the 2012 team. Well, also the yeah. last time they won the U20 World Yeah, Cup exactly. But di- didn't the first Red Stars game that season, didn't they win one nothing on a goal, which was either a corner kick, either DiBernardo to Ertz or the other way around? I know that happened in the season. I don't know if that was the opener or not. All right, I will look that up as we head into the number five pick, which was FC Kansas City. This was also um, a trade that they had made with the Boston Breakers to acquire this pick, and they wound up with Cassie Kalman. And it's easy to forget that Cassie Kalman was a really big contributor on the team that won the title in 2014. She was the left back after a little bit of time. She got moved to outside back, and then they used her to flip back to Boston for Heather O'Reilly, who helped them win in 15. So uh, very good use of the number five pick for FCKC. You know, it's funny when I, I looked at this at first, I thought, oh, that's that pick's kind of a bust. But then a little bit more consideration, I, I thought that wasn't a very good analysis for two reasons. One, if you look at who was picked after her uh, for the next few picks, there's not really anybody in the rest of the first round or even the second round that stands out. But as you mentioned, she was a rookie and started in a semifinal and a final of a championship team, which is really remarkable. I mean, she only played four seasons in the league. But as you mentioned, not only what Kansas City got out of her in that one season, but then what they got out of her in trade value, I think makes that a pretty good pick overall. I think if you you kind of look at the board and you see the players that are left, I might, you know, think, okay, my Hayes is probably a better pick. But I think if you look at what Kansas City needed at that time, they didn't need another goal scorer so much as as they needed what, you know, Common turned out to be. Um, she may have had a stellar career, but I think she was pretty solid um, for for whichever team she she played for. So I don't think that's a that's a really a bad pick. But one other thing on Kalman is that she wound up after being traded on some bad teams, and yep. she's the sort of player that is more likely to blend into a bad team than you're going to look at on a bad team and say, oh wow, 
Cassie Kalman is really a standout. So I think she got a little bad luck in terms of the team she wound up on after FC Kansas City. Uh, Chelsea, since you mentioned Maya Hayes, though, let's go there next. And she got taken by Sky Blue forward from Penn State. She was uh, mentioned as the great, you know, player of versatility in this draft, even though that probably has turned out to be Ertz more so. Um, I look at Maya Hayes a little bit like Zakia Bywaters, who we talked about last week. Every time it seemed like she was about to start really becoming an impact player, she would get hurt, never like seriously, but enough to take her out of the lineup and eventually, I believe, retired to go to medical school, but just kind of had a, a career that was trying to get off the ground, but never did. And overall, maybe an average pick here at six for Sky yeah. Blue, by the way. But if you look at the at the time, like she was a goal scoring machine for both Penn State and various youth teams, including, again, that U20 team. She She scored quite a lot of goals. For them, so I think at the time that the expectations were pretty high for her. So, in you know, if you're sitting there in the room in 2014, I don't think that's a bad pick. Yes, in hindsight, doesn't doesn't quite work out. Um, she just kind of floated around and scored, you know, some goals here and there. Never really. I don't think she's just one who could really adapt to the the professional game for what it it needed beyond what she had at that skills that she had at that time. But I think at the time that was a solid pick. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like when you look deeper in the draft, and, and we'll talk about this, there are a couple of hidden gems, but nobody saw that at the time. And if you look at who's immediately after her, just like Coleman, there's not really anybody who stands out where you can say, wow, Sky Blue really missed with that one. Um, she does only spend four seasons in the league. She only scores nine goals, which is not great for a forward over four seasons. But, uh, you know, considering what was on the board at that time, I think that pick makes sense. She had a little bit of a run where she was an outside back for about a month and looked like she'd be pretty good back there, and then again got hurt. So all fair points. Now, speaking of star-crossed players, the number seven pick went to Seattle. This was a trade from Portland, believe it or not, and they took Amanda Frisbee from the University of Portland. And I don't know what you say about Amanda Frisbee, but just a career that never got off the ground. No, but I think she had the potential to kind of to fit in kind of wherever you need to be, that role player. She was not going to be a star. She's not, I don't think then or now, was a first-round draft pick, even though the draft really is dropping off at this point. But you kind of think, okay, well, she can play a defender. We can put her in midfield somewhere. You, she's one of those people that's probably nice to have on your bench in case of if you have a lot of injuries or something like that. Although usually she was the injured player instead of the one on the bench for the well, injured player. Yes, true. Well, I think she actually won a championship in Iceland at some point on this journey. But she was in Kansas City and Western New York. And did she play for Sky Blue briefly, maybe? She was. She, she got around pretty good. What I remember about the pick was that uh, Meg Linehan, who at the time was writing for Equalizer, wrote a glowing piece about Amanda Frisbee and talked to her parents and her coaches. And that she, you know, great player, versatile player, great kid. And uh, when we talked to Laura Harvey at that draft, she looked at Meg and she, uh, with some language that maybe I can't or shouldn't repeat on the podcast, was not pleased that Meg had written the story because she was afraid that the story increased her draft value too much and that she would be off the board by seven. <laughs> uh, but she wasn't and, you know, not a great pick looking back for the Rain FC. 
Uh, should we do eight and nine together? Because these might be the two. Uh, these are two of the biggest busts in the history of the first round. Kem Ezerike to the Breakers from the University of Michigan and Courtney Verlu to the Flash from Stanford. At one time, I know Verlu held the record for fewest minutes ever played in the NWSL for a first round pick, which was one. I don't know if there's anybody yet that hasn't played at all, um, but I can't remember any impact either one of these players ever made on a game. And uh, I, I do think there were probably better players to be picked after them. I Yeah, I don't have much to say on either, except I know that uh, Verlu won a championship with Stanford, so she at least had that on her resume. You know, and her, her minute is kind of a statistical anomaly, too, because it was a stoppage time substitute. Uh, so she did come into the game, but I think some sites actually have it listed as zero minutes. Interesting. And it actually could have been more than one minute, though, if it was stoppage time. Sure. She have actually been out there for two or three minutes. Right. Very interesting. Because the, you know, the Flash didn't draft great. Now they got in the first round of the year before they took French, which was kind of the no brainer pick if you're looking for a keeper. But until they got to Charlie Namo and had that great 2015 draft, they were not really that adept, I don't think. Well, they they did pretty good the first, fourth round of this draft. Well, they that's, did. You know, <laughs> I, they did. I don't know if we want to jump ahead to that, but I, I was talking to him on something unrelated a while back about the youth game, and he actually mentioned Kristen Hamilton, who, spoiler alert, was the last pick of the draft, who turns out to be very valuable. And he had mentioned her and talked about watching her, so I don't know if he was involved in that process in 2014 or not for them. Interesting. All right, so that's the first round. No Portland Thorns pick in the draft. Two for the Red Stars. Uh, some others got traded around. None for the Thorns. We will step aside, come back, and run down team by team what they did in rounds two through four, and maybe a quick update on whether or not we are close to actually being back to playing soccer in the NWSL. With John and Chelsea, I'm Dan. This is the Equalizer Podcast. Hey, everyone. Jeff Kasouf here, founder of the Equalizer. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment, but first, I want to make sure you know about another podcast that we have called Kickin' Back. In Kickin' Back, I speak with players, coaches, and personalities from across women's soccer about defining moments in their careers and what their futures hold. It's a casual, conversational podcast featuring superstars of the game and unsung heroes you probably don't know enough about. We talked to Becky Sauerbrunn about the moment she realized that she was good enough to play for the U.S. national team. Crystal Dunn describes her love-hate relationship with constantly switching positions and how she and her husband manage working for rival NWSL teams. Allie Riley traces her globetrotting journey and shares her Oscar-worthy video moments and top vegan recipes. Jill Ellis details the tactical nuance most people missed as she guided the U.S. to back-to-back World Cup titles. Beverly Yanez reflects on the growth of her game throughout her career and when she knew it was time to start the next chapter. Our podcast is wide-ranging and our list of guests ever-growing. You can find Kicking Back, no G in there, just an apostrophe because we're keeping it casual, on any platform you use to stream podcasts, including this one right here. Just like with this podcast, subscribers to the Equalizer Extra get an ad-free version, so be sure to subscribe to all of our exclusive content, which includes text, audio, everything, at equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe. When you finish up with this pod, please go ahead and check out our latest on Kicking Back. We hope the two of these complement each other nicely as you dive deeper into women's soccer.
Back on the Equalizer podcast, reviewing the 2014 NWSL draft. And if you're not familiar with our site, check us out on the web at EqualizerSoccer.com or for premium content, EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe as we do our best to continue to bring you premium women's soccer content, even in the absence of the NWSL season so far. EqualizerSoccer.com. Also, please rate and review the Equalizer podcast today. Some news and notes, um, as first reported, I guess, by Stephen Goff of the Washington Post, but confirmed many places, including the Equalizer. Uh, there is a plan on the table that would see the NWSL teams congregate in Utah starting at the end of June for about a month-long tournament among the nine teams, all in Utah. Games would be streamed, but most likely not attended by fans. Um, and if it comes the time that there's enough news that that's what we should be talking about on the pod, we'll do so. But really, there's not much more than that. A lot of questions yet to be answered. The German Women's League is scheduled to begin play next weekend. The Men's League has been back now uh, for a couple of weeks. And Rain FC have signed, or sorry, OL Rain have signed Yuka Momiki, which, and I always find it odd when you get uh, international signings during a pandemic but it's a contract and apparently it is a new contract not a um not a loan or anything like that and april 19th 2014 red stars home opener opening day they had not played week one so it was the second game for the flash julie johnston now urts from vanessa di bernardo in the 59th minute i think it was a corner kick but i don't have that handy only goal of the game and the red stars won it one nothing on a shutout for Karina LeBlanc. So that's all that. And uh, 2014 NWSL draft now. Let's go team by team. We'll just start in the second round and take it as we go. The Dash had Raphael Souza number 10, Marissa Diggs number 11. And then they did not have a pick in the third round. In the fourth round, they got Jordan Jackson at number 28. I guess, you know, all three players contributed a little bit, but... Um, you know, we talked about Ojai not being the reason that they weren't, haven't been successful. You need good down draft, down roster players in order to win. The Dash have rarely had that. I don't know that any of these three were that. Any memories, thoughts on any of them? That says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, not like I remember some of them being there. About it, they there they played some. Didn't really. Any Diggs scored some a goal, couple goals maybe, but. All right, now here's an example of a team that did exactly the opposite of that. FC Kansas City had the 12th pick. They got Morgan Marlborough, the 16th pick Jenna Richmond, the 19th pick Francis Silva, the 20th pick Mandy Laddish, and then the 35th pick Megan Kelly. Yeah, Laddish is another one of those U-20 World Cup winners yeah. starts. And she doesn't play a lot her first season, but her second season, she starts 15 games. They win the championship. She starts in the semifinal, uh, semifinal and final. That's a big – and, again, you know, her career kind of got derailed by injury over the next couple of seasons. But she was a major contributor to that championship team. I think Laddish is underrated. I think if she had been able to stay healthy, we, we'd be talking about her a lot more. I think she had a yeah. very – very good skill set and was yep. just a very, very solid player that you could kind of build the center of that of your of your team around. And she was one of those players who combined that 
that physical size with a technical level that I don't think we see a lot. I think she's a very intelligent soccer player. Like yeah. She could read the game very well, which was always helpful for a midfielder. And Jenna Richmond, who they took at 16, that was the year that Desiree Scott left kind of controversially and went over to play in England. And Jenna Richmond, when Vlaco changed things up, and we mentioned he put Kalman at outside back, Richmond kind of went in that second defensive midfield spot next to Jen Boskowski and helped them win and then very quietly dropped off the map and decided not to play anymore. Event started with a year off and I think she now lives with her husband in Ohio where they, where she maybe works for Ohio State University, but she was a real key contributor as a rookie. So not only did Kalman start as a rookie, but so did Jenna Richmond. And I think that's one of the more underrated elements of Vlako Andonovsky's coaching career. Yeah, he revitalized Lauren Holiday and Amy Rodriguez and all that, but he figured out how to get rookies into that into that lineup. And I think Richmond could have been a player that maybe could have gotten seen by the national team if she stuck it out. One to go a little bit further down, Megan Kelly didn't do a whole lot for, for FC Casey, scored some goals, but she got attention from Canada. I think she got capped against the U.S. by Canada. That sounds correct. And for the 35th pick, I mean, that's not a bad player to get 35 players into a draft. All right, the breakers next, uh, Natasha Anassi, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which probably gives you an indication of what her pro career was like. Jasmine Reeves, who I assume we'll get back to, Molly Pathman. Um, Anassi was 13, Reeves 21, Pathman 23, and then Jamie Kranich 32 and Kim DeCesar 34. It's almost like their draft got better as it went along, though, which is not usually a good thing. <laughs> Pathman and, and Jamie Cranich, I think we're on that U again to go back to that U20 team. That um, U20 team. That U20 team. They they were both on there, so I think the Breakers actually did pretty good, um, considering the lower end of the, the draft that they had. And I mean, I think they got some some decent role players. I think that another one is going to change their fortunes, but that's kind of Boston's whole thing. They never got anyone that was going to change their fortunes until they got uh, Roosevelt, but I think it's 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 a solid haul. Well, yeah, but you look at, um, you know, as Enrique and Anasi, who is not on my list of, my master list of players who have ever appeared in a league game. I mean, you can't blow two of the top 13 picks like that. Yeah, they did do pretty well, but let's not forget that Jasmine Reeves, as a rookie, was really good. She scored a hat-trick against the Thorns that season, and then got some kind of incredible job offer, I think, at Google and left after her first season. And that was the game when Tom Durkin benched a whole bunch of people. And I remember being at the Sky Blue game, and it was actually like a halftime buzz sort of thing. Like you would walk around at halftime. People were like, oh, did you hear? Boston's beating Portland. And Reeves had a hat trick in that game. And, I mean, she could have actually been someone that scored goals consistently for them but just left the team. So the best player they got in the draft didn't even stick around much. And Kranich, by the way, was a decent backup. And, you know, DeCesar got hurt a lot, but I always thought had a little potential as the 34th pick. All right, moving on to the flash. Chloe Callahan, another player that I can probably safely say I could not have told you existed before we did this pod. She went at 14, Kelsey Weiss at 18, Annie Steinledge at 27, and as you mentioned, John, Kristen Hamilton at 36, so I'll let you go first on the Flash players. Well, I mean, the very last pick of the draft, 
And, you know, if you looked at her now, she would start for five teams in the league right now. Sounds about right without thinking about it too closely. Yeah, I mean, she had nine goals last season. She's been a bit, a bit of a, a late bloomer, and she's certainly not somebody who you'd stand next to and would impress you with their physical stature, but she's turned into quite the player. Yeah, yeah I think – go ahead, Chelsea. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, Dan. I'm just going to say, first of all, she went to the University of Denver, which is not exactly a, a pro sports right. hot spot, but I think – that Kristen Hamilton is one of the first players that has really benefited from what this league has become. Because I don't think you go back to that day and say, oh, why did all these teams pass on Kristen Hamilton? Because she was exactly then what she was, the last pick in the draft. Uh, you know, let's take a shot at this player who scored some goals in college. But because she's been able to hang around and she's, you know, she's on the curve, so she's been there. The entire time, because she's been able to hang around and get in this developmental system, all of a sudden, you know, she's been called in by the national team. And I think that's great. I think that's what this league and all pro leagues really are supposed to be about, the ability to be better six, seven years into it than you were when you get picked and not have to worry that the league's going to go away in a year or two. But that's the difference, too, between getting drafted into a stable team and getting drafted into a losing team, which is switching its front office and head coach every year and changing strategy and players are coming in and out. You go to a place like Western New York or Portland or Chicago where there's a little bit of stability and you start to see these players who become these late bloomers and really turn into something because they have time to develop and build confidence and improve. Whereas in some of these other environments, at least historically, we've seen players coming in and out, coaches coming in and out so fast. And that's where I think you see players who lose hope and retire early, and we don't really see what they could have accomplished. Absolutely. Um, Sky Blue went at 15 and took Haley Hagsma. And Sky Blue later up ended up with Michelle Powell at number 24, who I didn't realize went to Pepperdine. I had thought Lynn Williams was the first Pepperdine player taken, but evidently not. When Williams was the next year. Um, and then Elizabeth Eddy at 33. I'm going to go first on Hagsma because Hagsma was, you know, I don't, it's not a secret that I don't follow the college game real close, but the Hagsma pick was one where all the people around me were like, what is he doing? What are they doing? But I thought she was kind of decent. And then she tore her ACL, I think, in maybe preseason of 2015 and then kind of retired abruptly. But I don't think that was a bad pick at the time. And Eddie didn't sign with them, wound up in Western New York, won a couple of titles and is now back at Sky Blue. And as far as I know, still in the leagues, that's not bad for the 33rd pick. So we move on. Yep. Rain (laughs) FC, Seattle Rain. Um, when 17, they took Megan Brigman at 17 and Ellen Parker at 30. Uh, and that's it. Did we move on? Yeah, not much to say there. All right. The Red Stars got involved again at number 22 with Haley Brock. And I guess that's it. They, so their only three picks were um, Ertz. Bernardo and Haley Brock, but John, didn't she hang around for a while, even though she didn't really play a lot? Wasn't I feel like she I was, think she was there for pre-season, two seasons? Um, but yeah, I mean, she didn't she didn't see much action. 
All right, where else are we here? The Thorns didn't pick until 25. And it was one of only two picks that they made, but it was Emily Mengus. And then yeah. at 31, Elizabeth Sullivan. John, you reacted, so take it's it away. It's just such me. a crazy steal. When you look back at this, we already talked about Hamilton, but the other big one, Mengus, you look at that and you go, oh, my gosh. At the 25th pick, at the end of the third round, with their first pick, that's how late they were picking in this, they pick up a six-year starter for one of the most successful teams in the league. She's been in the playoffs five of her six years. They've won a championship with her, a shield with her. She's been in the best 11. That's as good as it gets. And she's underrated, I think, with all that. Yeah, I mean, we talked two weeks ago about how she was right there, kind of on the fringe of the national team pool. So, again, you cannot make a better – you could argue you can't really make a better first-round pick or certainly a later first-round pick than, than what they got at the end of the third round. So it's just amazing. I think in 2016, there's no argument to be made other than her and Christy Rampone were the two best center backs in the league. And I don't think either one of them made the best 11. And now Mengus has been a little bit injury prone since then and maybe hasn't reached quite that level. But I think in 16, she was the best, if not right there with Rampone as the best center back in the NWSL which is not bad for a third-round pick. From Georgetown, it wasn't like, you know, she didn't exactly come from a, a place that turns out great soccer players either. Chelsea, anything on Mengus? Uh, nothing hasn't already been said. All right, the Washington Spirit, um, after done, they picked Molly Menchel at 26, Shasta Fisher at 29, and that was all they wrote. Menchel had a... Played a little bit, but, I mean, that draft was all about Crystal Dunn for the Spirit. And I guess we're uh, we're all done talking about the I mean, Spirit. It kind of just goes to show you really how much this draft fell off. There's a couple of, of gems, yeah. but it, it, as most drafts do, obviously, you, you don't see a ton of third and fourth rounders really go on to have stellar careers, and that's why we're pulling out the ones that have, because they are the exception to the rule. But this this wasn't a particularly deep draft, even as far as, as drafts go in general. Yeah, and to go back to that, that is a larger point in tying in Mengus. It'll be interesting to see in five, six years, if we're looking back at the 2019 or 2020 draft, if there's a sleeper in there who's who's well, done what. The 2020 draft is probably going to be an interesting one, just because they're not going to have much of a rookie season at all. So it's kind of well, like you're going to get two groups of rookies next year, which could be very interesting. Yeah. And you know, this is, we don't want to talk about this and it's not a very happy thought, but this is going to probably be another year where we see a fair number of early retirements, whether those are non-roster invitees who just decide, you know, I got to go get a job or it's later round draft picks who think, no, this isn't for me. And even veterans who just say, you know what? I stuck it out. I had a good run. Um, because, to sit around for months and months and months and not have um, whether it's a, a regular paycheck for these people who haven't been signed yet, or even, even these people who are getting paid at this point, whether they're going to stick around for another year, kind of waiting this whole thing out. Um, the league has changed in that regard in terms of young people being able to break in and how much time they're given to make that mark. And, 
we're living in very unique circumstances. So it's not going to be surprising if, if some of these later round picks from this year and even the ones last year that maybe we're holding on for another year to see how their fortunes might change, just kind of drop out and decide to go start a, a regular quote unquote career. Well, that's something we don't really talk about a lot. We, we, you know, we talk about how players are sticking around longer, and that, that's great. You know, you don't want to see these early retirements. But the, the flip side of that is there's not as much room for rookies to be able to break in like there used to be. Right. Until the league starts expanding. Yep. Well, I was going to say, we're supposed to come back with 10 teams in 2021. Do we come back with 10? Do we add even more? Do we come back with eight, six? Do right. we come back with the same nine? You have no idea how many jobs are going to be on offer when we have the league again. Uh, Chelsea, you said earlier that the draft has changed, meaning I think you were meaning, you know, coming in and making an immediate impact. Do you think that is the level of play in college, the level of play in this league, or just the lack of early retirements clogging up the rosters a little bit more? I think also, I, th- I think the league's gotten a lot better. Um, it's just the, the level of play. Um, we, we've talked about that a little bit. I think we talked about that with Kalia Ojai uh, a couple weeks ago. But I think the league, but probably because players are sticking around longer, I think the league, ha- league has improved. Um, you know, you've, you've got the, well, all of the U.S. women's national team at any, if not most, at any given point in time, which is the, the best team in the world. You've got internationals from, from all over. And yeah, we, we talk about how people think we can't attract them, but I mean, we're still here, still hearing buzz about big names coming to WSL every single season. You're still retaining players like Christine Sinclair, like Martin. Yeah, you, you lose Sam Kerr. You can't keep them all. Um, so I, I think overall the level of play, and I think that the college system is not set up for players to be successful professionals. And I could probably talk on length about that, but I'll just kind of leave it at that. Well, I think if you look at the men's game, it has moved gradually further and further away from the college game as the main pipeline. Well, I don't oh, see why the women sure. team would be any different as we keep developing well, it. As we keep developing, I mean, because because the MLS teams have they have their homegrowns, they have their academies. I mean, there's so many different pathways that they can go to. The NFL isn't quite to that point. I think that's quite a ways down the road. But yes, the, the hope eventually is is I mean, the first one I would like to see would be the homegrown role. I'd, I'd love to see them implement something like that. Start moving those players who who are ready to make that jump at a, at a younger age. But I think we're going to see more of that, and I would. I would like to see more of that. The college is, as much as I enjoy NCAA soccer, it's just not, it's just not the same. Um, and the other thing too is if players, you know, start to make that jump from, you know, the academy or wherever and skip college, it also means they think there's a, a viable long-term career that they can actually make a living off of, which is also something that Nibisel is not always offered. Well, that's what I think doesn't get mentioned enough when you talk about the men's game against the women's game. In the men, you know, if you go early into the NBA, even if you don't make it, you can probably make a million and a half dollars. If you do that in the WNBA, you're making maybe a hundred thousand dollars and then you're ended up without a degree. So there's a lot more, you know, it's a lot, there's a lot more um, reason to not go to college, you know, entering the world of men's sports and women's sports at this point, which is sad, but true. So that will keep the college game, I think, in the place where it is for longer than maybe we hope it will. John, you going to end up by throwing us the same question you did last week? Um, sure. Who? I mean, this one it's tough. Hard. I, I don't. I mean, we it, honestly, I feel like this is because of because of the fact that both 
Dunn and uh, Ertz are on that roster, it almost feels like the exact same question that we talked about when we said, who would you pick first if you were, if you were starting a team? Um, because I think both of you guys went with Ertz out of everybody, right? Out of like everybody in the entire league. Well, I did hedge and say that if I were blowing up the national team and starting with a possible fresh new system, I would consider, you're, you're right. You'd I did say Ertz was though. number one and I would consider done number yeah. two. So it's, you know, it feels like the same question. I did want to say I'm, I, I don't know if this is a, a really debatable question, but who do you guys think won? Who won the draft? I have to say I mean, the Red Stars. Chicago with those, that one-two punch. Unless you just want to go straight up trophies, then I think you go to Kansas City. Yeah, because I thought Kansas City had won the 2013 draft based on what we talked about last week with picking up Tim Rack and Mewis and then also parlaying that into a Rodriguez. But at so the think, same... Yeah, no, but I think... <laughs> well, because you look at what they got this year with, with Kalman and, and Laddish, although they contribute to championships in different seasons, Kalman in 2014 and Laddish in 2015. They were also coming at the draft from a team that tied for the most points in the league the previous year and just had to tweak yeah. to win, whereas the Red Stars, even though they got to 513, were not very good. They had a lot of work to do, and even in 14, didn't make the playoffs. Right. They Did they miss on the tiebreaker or miss by a point? It was, it was close. They had that wild 3-3 game with the flash when they took right. three PKs, and they were, they were close, but they yeah. it was, yeah. But these are the, you were right when you're saying, these are the building blocks of the turnaround for Chicago. Well, how many times do you watch a draft, you know, an NBA draft, an NFL draft, whatever, and you say, these players are going to be the cornerstone of our franchise for the next decade, and everybody <laughs> really believes it. This is a rare case. It's, it's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll tell you, you know, what, that, though. It'll be interesting to look at, like, if we were talking about 2020 a bit, look at where Portland's top two picks are in five years. And oh, absolutely. Is, is that really the foundation of Portland, you know, at that point in 2025? That'll yep. be really interesting to look at. On the Ertz Dunn question, what I would really want here is the number two pick instead of the number one pick. <laughs> so it's made for you? Exactly. Let somebody <laughs> else makes a call, and then I get the no-brainer leftover right. number yeah, two pick. If you were in the NFL, you'd save some salary cap space, too. Exactly. And if you're the right. one, if I had the one, then I would call you up with the number two and try to convince oh. you that I wanted your player and then yeah, we make, yeah, yeah. make a trade. And, right. And it works out. So are we all in agreement then that we would take Ertz, though, probably? I think so. And this is all, of course, without, you know, knowing what kind of team you had or were trying to build. Right. But, right. Yeah, it's close, though. I mean, if, if you want to tell me done, I can't argue the point, especially in the league, because she's. She's fabulous. All right. I'm going to guess we'll be back next week to talk 2015, but uh, there will be some news developments, hopefully, around women's soccer as we head toward uh, the end of May and into June. Hope everybody enjoys or enjoyed their Memorial Day. For Chelsea and John, I'm Dan. Thanks for listening to the Equalizer podcast. For the ones standing guard, for the eagle-eyed, for the knights in shining armor. 
and for all those who support them. We are Granger, your experienced safety partner, offering supplies and solutions for every industry, committed to helping keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com slash safety, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.